Thank you for your good singing uh, and participation week after week as we, uh, as we come here before the sermon and we sing. Uh, if we take the word of God literally, which I think at times we should, there's a verse in Psalms that says, where the praises of God's people rise, his presence then descends. And so in this weird mystical way, God's presence is here as we sing. So it's not just the pregame to the sermon. We're actually engaging in God's presence. So thank you week after week for doing that. Uh, and that means a lot to me because as sometimes here happens, I lead music. Uh, I listen to music. I watch music as often as I can. I write music. I, I am just engulfed in music. Um, and I listen to a lot of music, as I said. Now, I usually gravitate towards certain genres. I like rock and roll grew up in, on rock and roll. Uh, I like pop music because it's very infectious. It just gets stuck in your head. Uh, folk music is great. Acapella music is great, probably from growing up in the morning meeting. Um, Nora loves pentatonics, and there's one song that just needs to stop playing in our house. <laughs> but there's some music that I just don't understand, like jazz. I don't understand jazz. It's been explained to me that it's this loose, open-ended conversation, and you just need to figure out what's being said. I, I don't understand that. Um, but there, the, the biggest struggle for me musically is, hands down, classical music. I, I just don't get it. I am moved by the pieces, for sure. I have a deep appreciation for the, the pathway that the genre has carved for all other genres that I like. But it's harder for me to understand because it doesn't come naturally to me. And so what I started doing is, in trying to understand classical music, I started studying about composers. And I read about probably two of the biggest composers of our time, Mozart and Beethoven. And here's what I discovered about both artists. Music flowed out of Mozart. Out of, Mo uh, out of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, it was a seamless composition. It just came out naturally. It came without effort. He had 41 symphonies, and he wrote with speed. He was whimsical. He was fast. He would start something, and he would immediately need to finish it. He wrote about topics that were romantic, mythological, very reflective, and he would have a lot of drafts. He would have a lot of sketches of things that he was going to one day complete. And he could improvise. He could compose on the spot. There's a concert that he did in 1787 in Prague where the last half an hour he just made up on the spot. He's a natural. Beethoven, on the other hand, is a completely different story. Uh, Ludwig von Beethoven took years for an idea to crystallize into a composition, and he would take his time. He would not present to the public until it was perfect. He would have countless drafts and revisions and crossing outs before he ever presented anything. And unlike Mozart's 41 symphonies, Beethoven only had nine. And he was angry with himself and with the world. And his music actually reflects that. If you listen, there's a lot more changes in volume. There's a lot more varied contrast, different musical instrument choices, uh, which is even noticeable to somebody like me who just likes rock and roll. Um, but creativity was difficult for Beethoven. He wrestled with the creative process, even though today we can hear he clearly emerged triumphant. His work is filled with conflict and uneasy listening until its final resolution. 
And it's almost otherworldly emotions kind of reflect someone who's wrestling with their own inner angels and demons. Now, I don't bring up these two composers to glorify one or to uh, praise one's process over the other, but have you ever noticed that for some people in life, things seem to come easy? Some people are naturals, doing things that you and I only hope to do, things that you and I struggle to do. Maybe it's the person at your job. Maybe it's your coworker who just makes sales and does their job really well, but you can't seem to get an edge. Maybe it's your classmate. They get A's all the time, and they don't even buy the book. Maybe it's a musician like Mozart. They just let it seem to flow, but you can't play that H chord. There's no such chord as H, by the way. <laughs> there are people in life who just seem to flow, and there are people in life who fight to win. And if we're honest, sometimes we take that mentality and we apply it to our spirituality. We look around at everybody else and we, we think everyone else is having an easier time at this thing called faith than I am. You never hear them complain. You never hear them struggle. There's no doubt in their lives. And a relationship with God for them is like a bowl of cherries. Now, there's two possibilities with that. One, it's true. It does come easy for them. Or two, it's not true, and they're not being honest with you. There are some days in our lives and our walks with God where life is very much like a Mozart composition, and it just flows. And there are other days, other weeks, other months, where it's more like Beethoven, or it's a struggle just to make something good. And the reality, I think, is that sometimes we take our situations and our circumstances and we use them as a barometer for God's affection. We say things like, well, if I was doing the right thing, then God wouldn't allow this tough situation. If I was better or I didn't have this struggle in my life, God would be pleased with me. If I could just get it together, then things would go smoother. And the danger in that mentality is that it limits God's love and sovereignty to our emotions. It says that God would love me if I do. God would love me if I perform, which Galatians 2, Ephesians 2, and Romans 8 all tell us is a works-based mentality. So it can't be that. The reality is that we will struggle in this life, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Jesus says it in uh, John 16, In this world, you will have tribulation. You will struggle. So where is God in the struggle? What is God doing with the struggle? What should our response be during the struggle? Maybe you're here and you have these same questions. These are all things we're going to look at today through the life of a character in the Old Testament. Well, let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord, sometimes we lack the language to appropriately express how we're feeling. And sometimes we lack the courage to be honest and express that we're struggling. So God, would you give us vocabulary this morning and a little clearer of an image of what you're doing in our lives? As we look into your word, a book that has lasted longer than any kingdom, longer than any empire on the face of this earth, may the truth of who you are and your sovereignty in our lives continue to expand our relationship and our understanding of who you are. 
Amen. Now, as I get older and life becomes more layered with responsibilities, I'm realizing that the Bible is less of a storybook and more of a template manual. Yes, it has wonder, and yes, there's wisdom in it, but there's also a ton of examples for us in our times of victory and our times of struggle. And I think that examples are critical for us as humans to understand bigger truths beyond what we can naturally grasp. And if you look at the Bible, there's a ton of examples of struggle, but today we're going to look at the Old Testament character of Jacob. So let me give you a little bit of background as you open up to Genesis 27. So God has created a covenant with a man named Abraham. He doesn't have a people yet, but he has a promise to Abraham that a people will come from Abraham. And years go by with nothing. And then through a miracle, Abraham and his wife Sarah have a baby. and His name is Isaac. And so within Isaac, the people begin. The promise is fulfilled. God can be taken at his word because what he said came to pass. And so Isaac grows up and he takes a wife and then he similarly has an issue of how do we continue what God said? How does this people keep going? My wife and I can't have a baby. And so he prays to God on behalf of his wife, Rebecca, and she becomes pregnant. And sometimes, as you know, you get a two-for-one sale. And she's pregnant with twins. And the twins are wrestling with each other inside of her. And she kind of asks God, what's going on? And there's this prophecy of sorts from God uh, over the twins. In chapter 19, verse 23, God says to Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. That's what God says. And so she gives birth, and the first one is born, and he's covered in red hair. And he's named Esau, which means hairy. And now the second one is born holding Esau's heel. And so they name him Jacob, which means heel grabber or deceiver. Side note. I've said this to the kids at camp, but I'll say it to us at Terrell Road. If you ever want to find out more about yourself, if you want to understand yourself a little bit better, look up what your name means. Yes, our parents name us, absolutely, but I also think there's a deeper spiritual connection to your name and how God wants you to uh, behave and act and things he wants you to do within his story. So look up what your name means. So Jacob's struggle doesn't start when he first takes a breath. Jacob's struggle doesn't start when he can make his own decisions. It starts in the womb. And he's totally different from his brother Esau in appearance. According to the Talmud, which is the Jewish history and instruction book, Jacob's arms were smooth like stone pillars. He wasn't hairy like his brother. He's different in his likes. Esau liked to be outside. He was a man of the open field. He liked to hunt. He liked to be outside. It says that Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And if you translate that, that just means he's a mama's boy. He's different. And if you think about it, Jacob is different in that he's not the most obvious choice for a religious hero. 
He doesn't appear on the text as a man with overwhelming courage or kindness. He doesn't have his father Isaac's self-restraint or selflessness. He lacks Moses' valor, vigor, and passion. He doesn't have David's politics or poetry. He's without Isaiah's optimism and hope. But what does he have? He has conflict. He has struggle and wrestling. Let's read perhaps of the biggest struggle that sets up Jacob's life of struggle in Genesis 27, starting at verse 1. And when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Real quick, why is this blessing important? An Old Testament blessing from a father to a son included words of encouragement. It included the inheritance that the son was going to get. And it also had some prophetic future words of what would come to pass. And fathers, as your kids leave the house or they leave for school, it's important that you bless them. It's important that you send them with your blessing. Let's pick up in verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me some choice goats that I may prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. This family could use group therapy. But Jacob is hesitant Jacob does, Jacob's not on board with this, and he says, he points out the differences to his mom, and he says, I'm not like my brother Esau. I don't feel like Esau. I don't smell like Esau. I don't look like Esau. What happens if dad catches me? He's probably going to curse me before he blesses me, and Rebecca responds, that's fine. Let the curse fall on me. Just go do as I tell you. And so that's what he does. He gets the meal prepared. He dresses up like his brother, and he goes in, and let's pick it up in verse 18. He went into his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And Jacob deceives his father. He gets the blessing, and it's just like Mission Impossible. He's got to get out before the other brother comes in. And right as he leaves, Esau then comes in, and he goes, all right, here's the food. I'm ready for my blessing. And Isaac goes, well, who is that that I just blessed? And Esau figures out that Jacob stole the blessing. And he begs his father, please, just give me one more blessing. Don't you have one more blessing for me? And Isaac gives him a blessing, but it was nothing in comparison to what Jacob just got. And so Esau says, all right, I'm going to mourn for my father when he dies, and then I'm going to go kill my brother, understandably. And this sends Jacob on the run. Jacob can't stay home anymore. Now, it's interesting to note that there are two different ways this story plays out from Jewish tradition. 
in the Torah, which is our first five books of the Old Testament, the first way we read about Jacob is the way that we just read it, that he was a deceiver, that he was a conniver, that he stole the blessing, and that his intentions were not that good. And he lives up to his namesake. The second is that because Esau was an idolater, because Esau was a brash man and Esau was a murderer, according to Jewish folklore, Jacob did what he did so that the blessing of God wouldn't rest on Esau. And so from that point of view, what Jacob did, he did for moral reasons. He did for a desire to do good. The point is not to justify Jacob's actions, but to call to attention that with a different point of view, this story plays out differently, doesn't it? There's a possibility that this isn't the way that we always have heard it. And I think that if we're honest, there are areas in our lives where things can get a little gray. Not everything is as black and white as we'd like it to be. How many of you have ever taught Sunday school? I've taught Sunday school. I've done youth group. There are some stories in the Bible that are not as easily given to children. You want to talk about David and Bathsheba to four-year-olds? It's difficult because characters within the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they display complexity in their decision-making and there's ambiguity in their actions. And the reason that this is important is because we experience the same thing in our lives and in our journeys of faith. And I think if, that we're going, if we're going to live like Jesus, if we're going to strive to be more Christ-like, I think that there's an understanding that we as believers need to have that not everything is black and white and that we need to embrace the gray sometimes. Because if everything was black and white, then Jesus would have thrown the first stone at the woman caught in adultery. If everything was black and white, Jesus would have left Zacchaeus in the tree. He would have condemned the Samaritan woman at the well, and he would have told the thief on the cross, you're going to hell. But that's not what he does. Because behind every person, there's a different point of view from our own. And only God knows that. And I think that we as believers need to embrace that a little bit more often, that God knows what's going on, and I can embrace this gray a little bit more. Jacob, again, is characterized by this struggle in his marriage. He comes to his uncle Laban as he's on the run, and he says, I'm interested in your daughter Rachel. And Laban says, okay, do me a favor. Work for me for seven years, and then you can have my daughter. So glad Paul didn't tell that to me. And Jacob says, okay. And so he works for seven years for Rachel. The wedding happens, everybody's happy, and then upon further investigation, Jacob did not marry Rachel. Jacob married Leah, the older sister. Obviously, that didn't sit very well. And so he goes to Laban and he says, what the heck, man? And he goes, oh, it's not our tradition to marry off the younger before the older. Tell you what, work another seven years for me, and then you can have her. And that's what he does. Again, just struggling to get by. His transactions over the years are questionable. Before he steals the blessing, he actually stole Esau's birthright, which is the inheritance factor of, of, uh, of the family. His family relationships are struggling. Everything about him reflects struggle. It's like he goes from one problem to the next. And maybe you feel like that. 
that your life is a TV series from one episode to the next where you just can't seem to win. It doesn't matter what you try. It doesn't matter how often you pray. It doesn't matter what you read. It doesn't matter what groups you're a part of. It doesn't matter what church you go to. Nothing seems to make a difference, and you feel like God is far from you. Something to note is that Jacob is doing all of this outside of a knowledge of the presence of God. I'll say that again. Jacob is doing all of this outside of a knowledge of the presence of God. Sometimes we read the Bible and we look at all these crazy stories and we say, man, these are, these are the God people. They're killing people. They're stealing stuff. They're like These are God's people. But it never says that Jacob has a relationship with God or is even aware of God's presence at this point. And yet, God's presence is not far from him. Again, I'm not excusing Jacob's actions or behavior, but maybe you feel like God is far from you this morning. But God is as far from you as you put him. And if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. James 4, verse 8. And as we keep reading, Jacob is still struggling. Jacob is still wrestling. Exhausted just talking about it. But now he's going to wrestle with someone else. Turn to Genesis 32. Jacob's struggle is about to change. Genesis 32, verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the fort at Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. It's interesting to note that God does some of his most important work in our lives when we're all alone. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Seems unfair to me. Verse 26, then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And I never noticed this until I started reading and studying for this, but he's holding on to the man even with a wrenched hip. He's not letting go. He's probably in pain. He's probably tired because he's been wrestling all night, but he's not letting go. And I think we as believers need to take that mentality a little bit more. That we're tired, we're in pain, but we're not letting go of God. Verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And now Jacob wrestles with God. And from that struggle, Jacob gets a new name. What did Jacob mean again? Deceiver, heel grabber. What does Israel mean? It means triumphant with God. Now that's a difference. One has all but defined Jacob's actions and deeds up until this point, but upon an encounter with God, now he becomes triumphant. So how does this apply to us in 2018? Well, we all, like Jacob, have a past a name that has defined or is currently defining us. And when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we get a new name, a new identity in Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. So, so Jacob not only gets a new name in this scenario, he gets a completely new identity, one that means triumphant with God. And we, too, get a new name and a new identity in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. But there's a problem. The reality of that statement does not mean that things magically become easier or better for us. I run into some people who step into a relationship with Jesus because they think that if they do, things will become better for them. And then they become disillusioned when nothing seems to change in their lives. When they still struggle. Yes, we are redeemed. Yes, we are saved. Yes, our eternity is secure. But I still struggle with anxiety. I still struggle with depression. I still struggle with addictions. I still have doubt. I still struggle with my purpose, and I still struggle with my identity. So why do we have these feelings? Why do we still struggle? I'm a Christian. This shouldn't be an issue, right? Why do I still struggle? Well, because a relationship with Jesus is a process, not a pill. Our culture has a pill mentality. If your head hurts, take an Advil. If your stomach hurts, take Tums. If you're feeling anxious, take a Xanax. And we let that pill mentality slip into our faith. We think that if we pop one, we'll feel better. My issues will change. My circumstances will improve. If I pray, this won't hurt. If I read my Bible, my relationships will improve. I won't struggle. And this goes back to the workspace mentality that we mentioned earlier, that because I do something, I should get something. And that's not true. And that's bad theology. A relationship with God may not change your circumstances, but it will change you. It'll change your outlook on the situation. So now you can go through a life of uncertainty and struggle knowing who you are because God has claimed you as his own. Regardless of whether things get easier for you, we have a new name. We're now children of God. Okay, side note, why children? Why not people of God? Why not slaves? Why not robots? Why children? Well, children implies intentionality. Children implies belonging. Children implies value. And children implies identification. And it's that identification that reminds us that as we're struggling, it's shaping us to be more like Christ. The big idea, if you get nothing else out of this entire sermon, the big idea is that struggle is not meant to define you, it's meant to refine you. And if you notice, Jacob never pretends that he's not struggling. Sometimes in our walks of faith, we're really having a tough time, but we don't want anyone to know. Yes, some things are personal matters. Yes, we shouldn't just air all of our dirty laundry. I get that. But sometimes we hide our struggle from our community, from ourselves. We say things like, well, it's not that big a deal. I'll be all right. And then we try to hide it from God. And I'll submit to you that pretending that you're okay when you're really not actually delays intimacy with God. Why does it delay intimacy? Because we serve a God who is intimately acquainted with how we're designed. 
And when we struggle, it's an opportunity for us to be honest with God about the feelings he gave us. How silly it is to say to the one who designed us, oh no, I'm not feeling that way, I'm all right, I'll be okay. When he gave us those emotions. There are some Sundays I don't want to be here. And that's not because I don't like you. I might be dealing with a tough relationship issue. I might have had a crazy week. I might be wrestling in my relationship with God. And the last place I want to be is in this room. And I don't say that to make you feel bad. I say that to be honest. To not pretend. You see, pretending that we're okay, trying to present to everyone else what we think we need to look like, delays intimacy with each other. And we think that God needs to see us a certain way. I've read through the Bible. I don't see that. And the problem is if you just continue in that pattern, if you just stay fine, you never address the problem that you're dealing with, and so you go through life never moving forward. That's why some people just stay in a rut. And I think that's one of the reasons that we struggle. We're not honest. We're not real. I've heard it said once, to truly be spiritual, we first need to be truly human. To truly be spiritual, we first need to be truly human. And what that means is that we're not going to deny our emotions, our struggle, thinking that that's what God wants. Jesus talks about this in Luke 18 when he tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He says the Pharisee went on and on about all that he did and how great he was, and at least he wasn't like that guy. And that tax collector goes, have mercy on me, a sinner. He just admits he's not perfect. And Jesus says that that tax collector went home justified. I think it's because he was honest. We can't pretend that we're okay when we're not. Because it delays intimacy. Now, from this point forward in Scripture, you would think that you would just refer to Jacob by his new name, Israel. But if you keep reading, the rest of his life, he's actually called both, Jacob and Israel. And I'm wondering this morning, maybe you are as well, why would God give him a new name if he wasn't going to use it exclusively? Why would God name me his child if I'm still going to struggle with things? I think it's because God's more interested in our journey than our destination. God's more interested in who you are becoming than who you think you should automatically be. He's more interested in molding us and shaping us to be more like his son. Again, not to define us, but to refine us, and that doesn't happen overnight. Our faith is a journey, a road of shaping us and molding us. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3. He says, not that I have already obtained all of this or have arrived at my goal. I'm not there yet. But I press on, talking about knowing Christ just a few verses prior. Our faith is not a light switch where we just flip it and things just become better. And I think that the main chisel in our lives is struggle, difficult situations that continue to form us to be more like Christ. And what's awesome is that God, yes, is the God in our victory, but he's also the God in our struggle. He not only identifies himself as triumphant, but he chooses to associate himself with those of us who struggle. 
What do I mean? Many years later, Jacob is dead, and his descendants are now slaves in Egypt. God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, you can read it. And God is about to use Moses to deliver his people, his children, out of Egyptian oppression. But Moses is hesitant. I think Moses is stalling. But he asks God, he says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. What am I supposed to tell them? And what if they ask, well, what is his name? Then what am I supposed to say? And God says, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of? You'd think he'd say Israel. That's the name, right? That's the one that means triumphant, not God of the heel grabber, not God of the deceiver. They knew what that name meant. Why would you use that one? But it's in, it's in this pivotal moment of self-disclosure, this identification that God says, I'm the God of Jacob. It's as if God is saying, if you want to know who I really am, you've got to understand that I'm the, the God of Jacob too. I'm the God of that part of you that you don't want anyone to see. I'm the God of that part of you that struggles. I not only associate with those of us who have victory, but I choose to identify myself with those of you who feel defeated. You see, God understands that we're broken. And he chooses to associate himself with the broken, with the struggling, with the messed up. In other religious literature, whether it's the Torah, whether it's the Quran, we see a hero that's idealized and positively portrayed until they don't seem human anymore. Until we can't really relate to them anymore because what they're doing and what they're going through just doesn't, it's not our reality. But I don't think that's why God shares these stories. God uses people who struggle. You know, we tell the story of Noah, upright, blameless, perfect, chosen by God to save humanity, but we don't talk about the part he got drunk. We read of Job, upright, perfect, righteous, full of perseverance, even when Satan basically bets God until he curses his fate. Peter has this great pronouncement of who Christ is. He's like the pillar of the church, but we don't talk about the part that he walked out on his faith and he said, I'm going fishing. But Jacob epitomizes fallibility, and that's the point. Jacob was a Beethoven, not a Mozart. His life is a series of struggles. Nothing comes easily to him. If you think about it, the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's the only one who chose to be chosen. Abraham, called out by God. Isaac, called out before his birth. Moses, Joshua, David, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. All of them had a mission from God. Jacob didn't. He chose this. He struggled with this. He stole it, so to speak. And God appears to him in the middle of that wrestling. He chooses to wrestle with him. You see, God can handle our wrestling. God can handle our struggle. He isn't dethroned if you have doubt. He isn't disappointed if you struggle. Psalm 103.14, he remembers we're dust. He knows how we're formed. 
He doesn't look down on us. I grew up in an environment that said, if you have doubt, there's something wrong with your faith. But the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's sight. 2 Corinthians 5.7, we walk by faith, not by sight. You see, having doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Thinking that you have it all figured out is the opposite of faith. Sometimes we associate faith with feeling it. Oh, I feel faith. But faith isn't a feeling. I don't need to feel faith to have faith. I don't need to have goosebumps to believe God. I don't need to be happy to be grateful for what God is doing in my life. Faith doesn't mean I'm not going to struggle. Faith means that when I struggle, my eyes are focused on Christ, the author and perfecter of my faith, Hebrews 12.2. And Jacob's given a completely new name in this scenario. And we, too, are given a completely new name. That as we struggle, we know that it's shaping us to be more like our Savior and remind us of who we belong to. There are times when our spirituality comes very easily, as music did to Mozart. And as we see in the life of Jacob, sometimes walking with God is more of a struggle, like Beethoven. And maybe you feel like Jacob, someone who wrestles with faith, someone who struggles with your spirituality. You don't feel much like a saint. But God doesn't just reach out to the saints. He reaches out to all of us. And he promises us within his word time and time again that I will never leave you or forsake you. Struggle included. And again, the struggle isn't meant to define us, it's meant to refine us. That as we walk through this life and we wrestle with issues, not only has God not left us abandoned, but he's given us a new name that identifies us as his children. And our struggles are shaping us to look more like our Savior. So as you struggle, know you're not alone. And know that it's okay. He calls us his children so that the world around us would know that our God uses messed up, broken people. People who struggle. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the new name that you've given to us in Jesus. And the reality is that some of us are struggling this morning, whether it's physical needs, whether it's emotional burdens or spiritual doubt. Father, would you remind us that you don't look down on our frailty, but you delight in who we are. So, so much that you chose to send your son to become one of us, that through his obedience, we could be called your sons and your daughters. May you give us clarity and vision as we continue to struggle and as we're being shaped to be more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.